0: as we open your Word today and you show us uh, the idea of love, what love is, Lord, I pray that you would help us, to, help us to feel it, help us to understand it, help us to embrace it, and help us to learn how to walk in it. We pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to be at work in us, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, continuing in our study of the book of Romans, so I want to encourage you to open to Romans chapter... 13, well, where we're going to look at verses 8 through 10. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word from Romans chapter 13, 8 through 10. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, this is God's Word. Would you please have a seat? Well, this morning we come to a passage that is very easy to understand and yet very hard to do. It's of course about loving each other. And we intuitively know this is a good thing. You don't need to find it in the Bible or on the lips of some wise guru to know that love for your neighbor is a good thing. Perhaps that is why it's called the golden rule, the idea that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And if it's, but if the question is if it's so easy to understand and we all intuitively get it, why does Paul take the time to put it in this letter? And it's not just here, it's all over the place. Paul puts it in all of his letters. It's not just Paul, of course. We find it in the pastoral epistles of John, which are the major themes of his writing. You find it in the book of Revelation, you find it in the book of James. And you find it on the lips of Jesus as He preaches on it over and over in the Gospels. So, it is not a topic that is lightly spoken of. So, why? Have you ever wondered why it's so often in there if we just intuitively already understand it? I mean, something about this idea must must be important, and it must be perhaps something that we need to be reminded of. I I perhaps… If we think about it, what would society would be like without this intuitive sense that you are to love each other? What would, what would we have in this world today? Uh, and perhaps the best way to understand is you would have you know, Darwin's uh, description, the survival of the fittest, each man for himself, kill or be killed. You have that idea. And with, so without this sense that we should love our neighbor, That's where we would be in our society. So, something about the fact that God has written this upon the conscience of every single individual that He has created has held that particular societal uh, result in check. But we have to be honest. There is this tremendous tension that we all feel. On the one hand, we know we're supposed to live this way. On the other hand, we struggle against living this way. We find lots of people, lots and lots of people that we come across every day that we just simply don't want to love. For one reason or another, we run across those people. I mean, think about how easy it is to categorize someone in the I don't want to love you box. Go to the grocery store, and the people are clogging the aisles. You go to checkout, and there's a line, you know, 10 people deep, and the, and the cashier is moving at a snail's pace. Go to a restaurant, and they bring your order wrong, and they don't do anything about it. Drive on the roads. <laughs> I don't even have to say what happens there. In Katy or in Houston, someone is guaranteed going to be driving in a way that you don't approve of. <laughs> Put it that way. Get on social media, and what do we find ourselves doing? Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, can you believe this? Can you believe that? There is this tension so strong within us to put all of these people that we run across every day into the category of people I don't want to love. And yet at the same time, we intuitively know because God has written on the conscience that we are called to love each other. So I would think in light of that tension that it's somewhat clear of why Paul and the other biblical writers reinforce it so often in the Scriptures themselves, so frequently we find it being written. So, my question for you this morning is, how are you doing with that? It's really quiet in here. (laughs) Nobody wants to answer that question what does love look like? And perhaps that's what we need to answer the question, because he goes through here and talks a little bit about it. What does love look like? If we're to evaluate how we're doing in this area, we kind of need to know what it looks like to do it. So, let's look at what Paul says, and he says it in verse 9. He points us to the commandments. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, specifically, he's, he's going into the second table of the law, the second half of the Ten Commandments. I mean, there is one that's notoriously missing, the one about don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And there's actually some versions that might have that in there, although they're, they come from kind of the, the, the lesser trusted manuscripts. That's not to say that it shouldn't be there. He does tack on the whole and any other commandment. Clearly, he is talking about The commandments as a whole, specifically those have to do with your neighbor, are the way in which you are to love each other. This is what love looks like. So, that's an important concept just to think about. That we are, while we know intuitively that we are to love each other, I don't think we know intuitively what that is supposed to look like. And so, Paul, of course, by talking about uh, God's Word, spells it out with specificity. We are given the law. And you could say, we need the letter of the law. Because if we don't have the letter of the law, and we leave it to ourselves, well, I think we can get into a a little bit of trouble when we get into ourselves. Uh, And we do it, of course, with all kinds of good intentions, of the way we want to define what love looks like for another person. I'll give you one example because it, you know, points back on us. When I remember in, in, in 2020, uh, I think it was 2020, yeah, when the pandemic was coming about, and at one point we were trying to figure out what's the best way to handle things, and so we, we came up with a, a, a protocol for how you could come in, and one of those things was, was wearing a mask, and we put out signs everywhere that says, loving your neighbor is wearing a mask, and of course, it's all good intentions for that, but here we are taking upon ourselves this idea of this is now what love, lo- love looks like. Now, we could debate. I know this is kind of a touchy subject. I'm not trying to poke anyone's you know, emotional pain as they remember those days because they were difficult, uh, but the reality is we did it because we thought it was the wise thing to do. We did it because there were experts that are saying, this is what you're to do. You know, the struggle is now we realize, okay, there's experts on both sides that you could, you could point to studies in either way. You know, in other words, we don't really know absolutely if this is a good idea or a bad idea, but that's not really the point. The point is that we have took it upon ourselves to redefine what love looks like. Now, maybe that one's not the best illustration because you're still struggling and arguing that, well, we should be able to do that. But when you leave it to yourself to define what love looks like, you are putting yourself under the thumb of whatever the current cultural trends for love look like. And those vary from generation to generation, from culture to culture, from continent to continent. So it's a very subjective thing that we have found ourselves in. And for example, today we find ourselves in a society that wants to define love as someone who who not only embraces but encourages a woman who chooses to have an abortion when she doesn't feel ready for it. We are called to love each other by encouraging the promotion of pronouns that don't necessarily reflect your biological creation. We're called to, to recognize and embrace the idea of mutilating your body to change from one gender to another. That's what our society says is what love looks like. So you see, we can get in big trouble if we simply leave it to ourselves to define what it intuitively means to love each other. This is what it looks like. So we need... We need the letter of the law to be definitive and describe for us what does love look like. We need that. Otherwise, we get ourselves into trouble. And so, what does it say? Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Do not covet what belongs to your neighbor. We need this letter of the law. Now, let's ask another question well, why? Why love your neighbor? We could answer pragmatically and say, well, because it's, it's good for society. And we would be right about that. Loving your neighbor in the way prescribed does encourage a flourishing society. I mean, can you imagine just if even a family? Imagine your own family where you didn't hear any cursing from one sibling to another or one spouse to another when their feelings got hurt. Imagine a family in which spouses remain faithful to one another, even as far as avoiding lustful looks at others. Can you imagine the kind of trust and intimacy they might enjoy? Can you imagine a family where members didn't steal from one another? You would never hear from another room, who took my… whatever it is. Can you imagine a family in which members didn't spin stories about their siblings when they feared getting in trouble or wanted to earn favor with mom and dad? Or when husbands didn't talk bad about their wives to other men. Or women didn't speak bad about their husbands to their mothers. Think of the level of honor and respect that others would have of your spouses. Can you imagine just a family whose members weren't jealous of the gifts of each other or the opportunities others had or the attentions others received? And as hard as it is just to imagine a single family like this, imagine what it would be like if society was like this. Certainly, society would indeed be flourishing. Loving your neighbor would be good for our world. But that's not the reason that Paul gives. He doesn't say love your neighbor because that will produce a flourishing society, even though it will. He says instead something different. He says, because love fulfills the law. Now, let's go back for just a minute and imagine why doesn't he simply say because this is what will cause society to flourish. Well, again, just like we're attempted to redefine or define for ourselves what loves look like, there is easy ways to define things that we should put in, into place in our world that will produce what we believe to be a flourishing society. And all kinds of philosophers over the years have tried to create those very things, What does a flourishing society look like? How do we get there? Think of all the political systems that have been proposed as a way to produce a flourishing society. Whether Whether it's Marxism or whether it's capitalism, people have proposed these things, that this is how we create a flourishing society. These have to trump all other things. I'll give you an example with the idea of capitalism, and specifically Anne Rand, for those of you who are familiar with her her philosophy, her political philosophy. Anne Rand was a big promoter of capitalism and the individ- as the individual's way to, to uh, pursue his own happiness because if he is doing that and creating a competitive environment, it's going to push technology ahead, it's going to push advancements ahead, and in the end, by you being self-centered in your approach, it will end up resulting in a better, more advanced society. That's the argument. And you see what's happened there, you might very well choose to follow the letter of the law because it produces a good result for you, not because you love your neighbor. Therefore, when it's not going to produce a good result for you, when it's not going to end up flourishing you as an individual, well, guess what? It doesn't really matter. You don't do it. Because the idea that you have to produce a flourishing society becomes the more important motivation. You're not really doing it to love one another. You're loving one another because it ends up benefiting you. And really what you're doing is you're just, you're just using your neighbor in that regard. You're not loving your neighbor in that regard. So, we see we have to have not only a right understanding of what love looks like, we have to have a right understanding of why we are to love each other. And Paul says it simply this… He says in verse 8, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We do it to fulfill the law. Now, that's a pretty interesting statement. What exactly does that mean to fulfill the law? What does that mean to fulfill the law? Well, I think at least in part it means that the purpose of the law is to love each other. That is the purpose of the law. So, if we said in the earlier sense we need the, the letter of the law, to understand how to love people, we also need to understand the spirit of the law, if we're to truly love people. And if you only have the letter of the law without the spirit of the law, you can see where you can fall into the places like the Marxists and the Ayn Rands of the world. Or if you only have the spirit, what was it? the only if you only have the did I get that backwards? If you only have it the other way around, you can also find yourself uh, redefining what love actually looks like. You know, they were doing that with good intentions, even at the time of the Old Testament, Isaiah is writing all the times, one of the things that you have done as a people is you have called what is good evil and what is evil good. Now, if you ask the people in the time what he meant by that, they would probably argue that what they were doing wasn't evil, it was good, because in their minds, they had good intentions of why they were doing it. Just like when we want to redefine what love is, we have good intentions for why we're doing it. We assume we're applying wisdom. The prevailing wisdom of the day points us in this direction. When you're living in a society that's, that's polytheistic in the ancient world and you're wanting to have a good outcome with your crops or a good, or a good uh, flourishing uh, city with your area, well, the, the wisdom of the day said you need to seek out and give respect to, pay homage to the God of that area, which flies in the face of what God himself has written down as the law. But that was the prevailing wisdom of the day. So, we not only need the letter of the law, we also need the spirit of the law. We not only need the spirit of the law, we also need the letter of the law. Let's imagine for a minute what it would be like if this law was fulfilled. What would it be like and I think the best way we can probably answer that question is to go back and look, well, when was this law being fulfilled on the earth? Was there ever a time it was fulfilled on the earth and you could go back? I mean, you, you, you could, but it's a very short period of time. <laughs> it's right at the very beginning of, you know, the beginning of Genesis. You have the time in the Garden of Eden. Before there was any disruption of the law, before the law was broken, you had a, a place in which there was... Uh, something that we have not experienced. You had a place in which the earth yielded its fruit to you. You had a place where husbands and wives had absolutely no walls or barriers between them. They're described as as naked. The measure of intimacy that existed was so powerful that they could literally be called one flesh. You had a people who were able to walk and talk with God face to face Without any fear whatsoever, because there was no such thing as guilt. None. So you have the very beginnings of what does it look like when this law is fulfilled? Well, you have a society in which you have all of these kinds of relationships the relationship between man and the earth, the relationship between man and woman, the relationship between man and God, all absolutely flourishing and producing a great blessing. So if we, if we draw that out and extend that out and ask, well, what would that be like if it had continued to go on like that? I mean, the best we can come up to is we have hints here and there that the Scriptures give us. I mean, we could turn to, of course, the end of the Bible and look at how he describes the new heavens and the new earth, and we can look at the hints that are given all, all along the way, that as, as great as we might experience our relationship with the world now, Paul describes it as groaning under the pains, just like in childbearing, waiting, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed, waiting for this redemption period when the law becomes fulfilled. We have Paul describing at some places uh, what he's going through in his suffering, and as bad as it was, light and momentary compared to the surpassing greatness of the glory that will one day be revealed. So we have this, these hints every once in a while through the Scriptures of this unimaginable place that is so wonderful, that is so amazing, that is so flourishing, that is so complete. That's what it would be like if the law was fulfilled. That's what it would be like if the law was fulfilled. Now, if we translate that simply to an individual level, that's what it would be like on the societal level. But what would it be like on the individual level? If you yourself could fulfill the law, what would it be like? Well, it's good. There's an actually that question is exactly asked to Jesus, the one with the right answer. So let's go look and how he answers that question. We find it in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. He's having a conversation with an expert in the law. uh, And it says this And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So the answer that Jesus is giving, if you individually fulfilled the law, you would inherit eternal life. And eternal life would match the description of what we're seeing of what is it going to be like in a new heavens and a new earth, in a place where all the bad things have come untrue. All the sad things have been made right. All the joy that was once lost has been brought back. That's what it would be like. Well, the question now has is, can we fulfill the law? Can we fulfill the law? Because it seems there is always some reason, some excuse that rears its ugly head as to why we can't do the thing that we are so called to do. And it is interesting and it's good that the conversation that Jesus is having, that we just read, doesn't stop there because the expert wants to get there. He wants to be able to successfully achieve in fulfilling this law that, Jesus, that he has described to Jesus. Jesus says, do this and you will live. So he asks a very important question. If all the law is the law summarized in the idea of loving your neighbor, he asks, well, who is my neighbor? Because in his mind, he's thinking, you perhaps know what he's thinking, he's thinking of fellow Israelites who also are following God's commands. That's a pretty narrow group of people he's thinking. And perhaps those thinking, those people are easy because we don't have as many reasons not to want to love them or put them in the category of unloved person. So Jesus tells this story. It's a story that you've probably heard before. It's the story that we would call the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let me read that to you just real quick. He, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, "'Who is my neighbor?' Jesus replied, "'Man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, "'and he fell among robbers who stripped him "'and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. "'Now by chance a priest was going down that road, "'and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. "'So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place "'and saw him, passed by on the other side.'" But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. We like that story. We immediately want to jump out and point out how bad the Levite and the priest are and how good the Samaritan are. And we would be right, of course, in doing those very things. But if you were listening to Jesus tell this story in the first century, the people that you would naturally incline yourself to resonate with would not have been the Samaritan. It would have been the priest or the Levite. I mean, the priest and the Levite represent perhaps the best of the society in which you yourself come, right? These are the Israelites who have the jobs that put them closest to God. They're the ones who serve in the temple. They're the ones who do the things that when we want to get close to God, well, we have to go see the Levites and the priests. The Levites was a particular tribe that was given that responsibility, and the priests were specifically anointed to do the work in the temple itself. And we want to condemn them pretty quick, but we got to be careful and think about, well, why might they not want to have stopped? Now, He doesn't tell us the excuses they give, but we can perhaps imagine. For one, the road that they are on from this place is called Blood Pass. It was a dangerous road. It was known to be a place where uh, bandits would would hide because there was lots of Hiding places to ambush travelers on the road who are out in a kind of a remote area. And that's exactly what happened to the man who's lying in the in the road, presumably. He's we don't know if he's dead or alive. And so the Levite and the priests as they go by could be thinking to themselves, if I stop here, this could put me in danger. If I stop here, this puts me at risk. Not only so, but their jobs had to do with handling things in the temple, and they themselves had to be clean. And if they touch a dead body, it means they can't do the things in the temple because it will make them unclean for a certain period of time. And they have responsibilities to other people. Now they can't do their job in the temple, which is to bring people closer to God. So you can see all these rationalizations going on in the mind. I have reasons why I have to care for all these people I've been given responsibility for. I can't stop it will put me at risk. Not only that, but who knows who this person is? We're not quite sure who he is. He may not deserve to be rescued. He may be a bandit himself, left by the other bandits. Maybe we don't want him back around robbing other people. So you can, you can see the rationalization of the reasons why, in their minds, it's a good thing not to stop. And don't these capture the reasons that we use when we don't want to love people? I'm busy. I have a schedule. I'm late. It's going to cost me something. It's going to cost me something I don't necessarily have. And if I if it costs me this, it means I'm putting my family at risk because they depend on me for this money or whatever it is that I'm being asked to help with. So either I don't have time or I don't have the funds, it's going to prevent me from doing the things that I need to do, or it may be that we look at them and say, you know what, I don't know if I want to help that person because I don't know what they're going to do if I give them money. They might go buy drugs with it. They might go buy alcohol with it. They might go to something even worse with it. Who knows, I may be enabling a bad problem. So we have all these same excuses of why we don't love each other. And consequently, what happens? We don't fulfill the law. So the question is, can you fulfill the law? Well, perhaps perhaps in theory. But the reality is, not a single person in this room has fulfilled the law. That we are all guilty of not fulfilling the law. Now, the good news is there's, there's a twist to this parable, and we like twists when Jesus gives twists because it usually means something good for us. We just have to be able to see it. And the twist comes at the very end of the parable when Jesus asks the man a question. And it's an interesting question because he asks it this way. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Because we're thinking, you know, who is my neighbor? We're thinking of the man that's on the, the street as the neighbor, and he's turning it around. Which of, which of these men was a neighbor? So it's, there's this sense in which he is inviting the listener to resonate, not with the people that he originally perhaps would have resonated with. Of course, no one's going to resonate with the, the Samaritan because a Jew would never identify himself as a Samaritan. But he's saying, look, what if you're not the Levite of the priest? What if you're the guy on the road? What if you're the guy on the road? What does love look like for you? Love looks like for you, someone who's going to do something that helps you, someone that perhaps is going to put themselves at risk to help you. What if, in fact, your life depended upon somebody putting themselves at risk? What if your life depended upon somebody perhaps not even putting themselves at risk but going all the distance and even paying for all of your debts? We don't know the situation of the Samaritan. We don't know if he was a wealthy man or a poor man. We don't know what kind of impact this had on him. But that's the question. You want to know who your neighbor is. The question is, who has been a neighbor to you? Who has treated you in such a way That brought you from death or near death, in His case, to life? And what would the impact be upon you if you understood that there was someone who chose to be a neighbor to you, even though you didn't deserve that, even though you didn't do anything to deserve His giving of anything for you? Because that's, of course, the exact situation that we really are in. The guy in the parable that Jesus is showing as you is not the Levite, it's not the priest, it's the guy in the road. And what kind of impact would that have on your life if you understood that somebody demonstrated that kind of love for you? Because that, of course, is exactly what Jesus did. When Jesus went to the cross... He was paying the debt that you owed, not just to society, but to God as well. And it didn't just cost him his pocketbook, it cost him his life. And he didn't do it because you deserved it. (laughs) He did it specifically because you didn't deserve it. That's why you had the debt. And by the way, if you didn't have that done for you, what would have happened? You would die. So here's a man who literally gave up himself, not only to save you in this life, but to save you for eternal life. So what is the fulfilling of the law? It's love. Is the law fulfilled? Well, yes, it is. It was fulfilled by Jesus Christ on the cross, who pours out His love to you and me. So we see, when we go back to why do we not fulfill it, and there is a sense in which we don't love like we're supposed to love because we ourselves have needs that we're afraid won't be met if we do. What we need is some way to overcome any potential loss that comes from loving others. That's what we need. And that is exactly the point of Jesus' parable. He provides you with an endless supply of love. It is interesting what he says is, is, let no debt remain outstanding except the debt to love one another. In other words, you don't ever exhaust the need to pour out love for others. Where on earth do you get an infinite resource of love that you can pour it out? If you don't have Christ, you don't have it. There is no uh, reservoir big enough that you can draw upon to be able to continually put yourself at risk and pay costs over and over again unless you yourself, ultimate need has been satisfied in your own heart. That's what love looks like and that's what Jesus has done for us. It's the only real way that we can be able to pour out our love for others. It's why when you read the pastoral epistle of John, and he talks about love, and he talks about if you don't love your brother, then you, are, then you don't have eternal life. You don't abide in the Lord. And he's not putting a condition on you, love your neighbor and then you will have eternal life. What he's saying is that if you have eternal life, if you are the, the guy on the road who's been healed, guess what? You have an infinite resource of love. You are the one person who has it to give to other people. So, the, the key to loving each other is knowing that you yourself are loved. For love is the fulfillment of the law. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that love is the fulfillment of the law and that Jesus fulfills that law so that we might be able and have the resources to love each other as we've been called to do so. Father, help us this week. And as we come to this table, Lord, we pray that you would show us in a very visible way your love for us, that we would be reminded of the resource from which we can draw to love others well. In Jesus' name, amen.